Hello and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. I'm Mira Davis, broadcaster, content influencer, talent booker, and very excited to be seeing live music and talking politics. And I am Senator Jen Jordan, and we are in session. So I feel like the only thing I am right now is a legislator. You've been very busy. I've been watching you via video. Which everyone can, by the way. (laughs) You can go to the General Assembly website and live stream from dawn till dusk. When you yield the well. My kids love that. I love it, too. I, I mean, when you took me of a tour of that Capitol, I'm like, is this where you yield the, the well? <laughs> it's so great. You had a good uh, little clip I saw that said, uh, take over the local. What was what? What's what's your quote? Yeah, basically, some of my Republican senators have told me before, because the Republican Party used to be the party of local control, right? that it shouldn't be the large state government. It shouldn't be the federal government. Really, locals should be in control of making decisions, you know, about their lives because they're the closest to the people, right? And so since I've been there, time and time again, they've kind of scuttled that. And I turned to one of them one day and I said, what is going on with (laughs) y'all? Like, I thought y'all were all about local control. And he basically was like, honey, we like local control when we control the locals. And I was like, all right. And that pretty much, that pretty much says it all. Says it all. Okay. Um, a lot going on. Uh, we're going to check off the things on the list since it's been a few minutes since we've been together. Uh, first off, uh, you're still in the attorney general race. Uh, you got a big endorsement from the Democratic Attorney General Association. This is a big one for you. Why is this so important in your race? Well, it's so important because DAGA includes all of the Democratic Attorney Generals across the country. And specifically when we're talking about election denying or the subversion of election results, people trying to steal elections, you know, the Democratic Attorney Generals really have been on the front line making sure that the law is followed and making sure that these elections aren't stolen. So it really is an honor to kind of get their support. And I think it's also a recognition of just how competitive this this race is. And also, you know, we'll give ourselves a pat on the back in terms of I think there's it's a recognition of how strong of a campaign um, that we have actually put together. Yes. And you've got a great team. It's always good to see them here at Ginger and headquarters. You're also in the Atlanta Magazine 500, the top 500 Atlantans. Now, my favorite part of this is that you didn't know you were in it, that I told you you were in it. That, that's just how, you know, powerful and all-knowing that I am. So. Well, I was looking for myself in it. <laughs> And unfortunately, I did not make it, but you did. And for that, I am very happy. More important Atlantans. This is kind of amazing. Senator John Ossoff is really making a huge impression on Capitol Hill. He's even been endorsed kind of by Sean Hannity as far as no people trading stocks, senators trading stocks. I mean, this is kind of amazing. You know him pretty well. Is this something that you expected that he would, you know, really ride this hard for this and it would be this well received? 
I think it makes complete sense in light of what he was attacking David Perdue for, right? And also Kelly Leffler, kind of they, uh, in terms of the pandemic, they were using their inside information with respect to the pandemic to then profit off that or make sure they didn't lose money, right? You know, we're going to cash out of these stocks and maybe invest in these. So it makes complete sense because on the campaign trail, he indicated that he was really going to push this. I think what's been interesting about it is how his team has gone about, I guess lobbying is the word, um, but they have really been pushing hard on social media um, and in getting people to go after their Congress people, senators, you know, members of the House. And I think it really has gained steam and momentum. And it seems like a no-brainer in terms of, of what we should expect out of our elected officials anyway. Well, and closer to home, I guess you could say this was a win for former Senator Purdue when it comes to the, you know, the real down and dirty race for governor as far as uh, Governor Kemp's fundraising. We're transitioning to the leadership committee yes. win? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But no, it was a win. So basically, a federal court entered an order that enjoined Governor Kemp's ability to raise any more money into this leadership committee. And this these leadership committees really were able, the governor was able to raise unlimited funds, right? There was no cap on it from whomever um, during the legislative session. So you can see how how that could probably be used in a super, super negative way. Well, so this is these are two interesting developments that have come about. I mean, you know, it's that race is really, really heating up. They seem to have maybe not been as nasty to each other. I mean, that thing came up. But I you, and I like to text you sometimes about some, some of former Senator Purdue's public events have really fascinated me. They are meme worthy. <laughs> well, I call him Sea Island Mr. Burns. Which is hilarious. Because, <laughs> and there was just a clip of him talking to uh, getting one of those hard hitting interviews with Diamond and Silk on the Mike Lindell network. Not even like OAN or Newsmax. It's on the MyPillow Guy network. And he's on there just not understanding how the First Amendment works. Look, President Trump, if a pre- and if an ex-president can lose the right to be on Twitter, I mean, where are we? Where are the rest of us? I mean, this is way out of bounds. And you know what? With the Democrats in charge, they're quite happy to see that happen because it fits into their rhetoric and it also fits into their, I'm going to use the word, their conspiracy with the national media. I'm yeah. sorry, but yeah. it's coordinated. I can tell you story after story from my six years in the United States Senate how it was coordinated between what was going on the floor of the Democrats wanted on the floor of the United States Senate and what was being talked about in the national media. And yet when individual citizens lose the right of free voice, then we turn into a Germany in 1933, a Russia in 1919, Cuba in 1959, and Venezuela today. I don't want to go there. And free speech is one of the first things that a central one-party system takes away from us, guys. And that's what I believe the Democrats are headed for if they blow up this filibuster rule. Man, how far we have fallen, right? I mean, a U.S. senator, one of the hundred most powerful people in the country, you know, talking to Diamond and Silk now. Yeah, so that's, um, it's it, but you see, I, I wonder, like, when they have those events with Senator Purdue when he goes places, obviously everybody there has to register to be there. It's, I, 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 
I, I, I don't know why they're putting out these photos of people. I will give it to Governor Kemp. It does look like when he goes to things, he truly enjoys being there. He likes talking to people. It, it just he feels like it feels like there's a comfort level for him when he's with the people. Well, I think it's more that he has a lot more money than Purdue. So he has a lot more people working. And you you indicated that you didn't think it gotten that nasty, but you should see some of these videos that Kemp has been pushing out in, in terms of attacking Purdue. I mean, they could have come out of John Ossoff's campaign. Wow. And maybe they should give them like some kind of honorarium or something. I don't know. Well, I know that Purdue's big ad was an ad with just Trump endorsing him. That Do you think this is a gamble now as far as you see like this is everybody's talking about Georgia is going to be the bellwether for that, whether the candidates that Trump is uh, endorsing and getting behind, that's, you know, really going to make the difference. And do you think that Purdue's kind of the guinea pig for that? You know, I think people are watching it. Uh, I think what folks forget is that whether, you know, Trump is one variable in, in it, and it's a big variable, right? So he kind of gets a plus one with respect to that, Purdue. But you still have to put together a solid campaign. You still have to raise the money. And he raised, I think it was like $1.5 this last time, while, you know, Kemp raised, who knows, millions and millions just into his campaign, but then millions and millions and millions into that leadership committee. And look, all that money, it is very hard to cut through that and kind of get your message out there when you're just going from one event to the other, you know? Yeah. Okay, let's move on to this Buckhead City stuff. It seems like it's put to bed now. Well, at least for for a little bit. Look, we've got a lot of work to do. I think all the elected officials from this area know that. Um, The mayor has, uh, has said it, right? And it's like, just give him some time, right? He just got elected. Give him some time to figure out what needs to happen and for him to actually get on the ground, you know, and make the policy changes that are going to result in positive things, not only for Buckhead, but for, for all of Atlanta. Right. So Speaker Ralston pretty much came out and said, you know what, we're going to pause. Yeah, well, you know, I think we can go back to Bill White's behavior on social media where he was basically maligning um, a gentleman who was beloved by a lot of people who ran MARTA, who committed suicide. And Bill White was pushing these conspiracy theories around that. And I think that was the final straw because Jeff Parker was incredibly well-respected down under the Capitol by Republicans and Democrats alike. And it was just so classless that I think that may have... Really, people said, yeah, we're not we're not going to do this right now. Well, I feel like it's the first of many uh, or that were I should say there were so many offensive things coming out of that initiative. Well, in Bill White specifically. Yeah, I mean that. So, okay, so that's good. We can we can put that on ice a little bit. A couple more things I want to get to before we get to our guest. Uh, Clarence Thomas statue at the Capitol. I see a lot of people, obviously Republicans, rallying behind this. He's alive, number one. Number two, everybody's conveniently forgetting that his wife is like a 
uh, insurrectionist basically as you know has in this is part of the whole january 6th thing right and puts all kinds of troubling stuff on social media and you know clarence thomas is is a very controversial figure and i've seen some people you know touting him as some maybe he's great at some things but a statue now well this is completely out of order in terms of the rules that we usually follow, right? The only person who has a statue on the grounds of the Capitol that's actually living is Jimmy Carter. And that was only done after his tenure as president was over. So if you were even going to say, oh, well, Jimmy Carter, well, maybe we can consider this with Thomas, but after he steps down from the Supreme Court, it's very premature. Look, this seems like a, like a, like an election year ploy, like it, like everything else. Okay. Okay. I, I just thought that was this, that's wild. Quickly, the banning the abortion pills through the mail. Yeah. I think uh, we really need to listen to uh, Michelle Al in committee. Senator Al was pointing out some very specific things in the bill that she, as a physician, was concerned about. Dr. Senator Al is on number nine. Thank you, Dr. Watson. Thank you, Senator Thompson, for coming to present. I have a couple of questions. Some of them are um, fairly granular, so I appreciate you walking me through this bill. The first question is um, on line 25. It includes three medications uh, in this list, mifepristone, misoprostol, and methotrexate. Later on in the bill, in line uh, 85 and 86, it says that these drugs do not treat ectopic pregnancies. However, we know that methotrexate is often used to treat non-ruptured ectopic pregnancies. Uh, so that's actually incorrect. So again, the, the bill's not perfect, and we say we're going to accept okay, amendments. We've we, we we talked about this, so gotcha. Thank you. That's not correct. Sorry, I have a couple more questions. Um, next thing, uh, in the listing of... Line 76, it says the abortion-inducing drug should only be provided or prescribed by a qualified physician. This is based on, I believe, you presented some 2016 REMS data. Are you aware that in 2017, the FDA gave an update for the use of mifepristone that says that APPs, that is advanced practice nurses, physician assistants, and um, other mid-level providers like midwives can prescribe uh, mifepristone? So we probably need to. So in 2019, they did an update on that also. So I got you again. Got you. Thank you. Probably needs to be corrected. So just a a couple more things that are very practice related. Next thing, um, line 98 says a qualified physician providing abortion inducing drug must be credentialed and competent to handle complication management, including emergency transfer. Does this, to your understanding of the bill, include admitting privileges? Are you aware that uh, previous Supreme Court cases have found that requiring admitting privileges for providing abortion care is unconstitutional? So that is is not specific in that language. And so if if a person has a follow up, I mean, that's going to be a matter of interpretation. That's going to be a person with follow up and the and the. The follow-up or complication relating to that, that the person prescribing this uh, would have someone on call or they would be doing it themselves or they would have a relationship with the emergency room and so forth. Given that there's confusion, that probably bears some clearing up. These were some amazing gotcha moments because clearly, and we didn't play the whole thing, but clearly 
they were caught with. Uh, my here's my question, and I did tweet this. We have a crazy opioid epidemic. More people dying than ever before. We have. Uh, I personally have a, a friend whose whose brother died of a illegal fentanyl overdose. And a lot of that stuff is coming in via the mail. You can buy all kinds of crazy drugs online. Well, and the, and the problem is we have folks taking drugs, even recreationally, that have basically been adulterated with something else, and then they're dying. And why aren't we focusing on that? I mean, we have so many people that are dying from opioid you know, overdoses or, or because the drugs they're taking have something in it that they didn't realize it had in it, and then they die from that. I mean, you're exactly right. It's like, why why are we focusing on this when we have such huge problems before us? And how are they going to police it? That's the thing that I wonder. If they can't police this, how are they going to be? I, I just I don't understand it. So it's going to go through to the Senate. Oh, I'm sure it will. But this is what I, this is what I said to him. I was like. So you're going to ban, ban abortion? I mean, you already passed a ban, right? So now we're just going to double down on it? It's like, are you just telling me you weren't effective the first time? And so you now you got to come back? I mean, it's just, it's such a waste of time. It, it really does. Um, but I did want to bring that up. And finally, I just... I did want to bring this up because it's crazy about Trump clogging the toilets uh, with documents. Uh, I think, you know, and and taking classified documents allegedly to Mar-a-Lago. And here we had years and years and years of Hillary Clinton, but her emails and we have this. And and there, there doesn't seem to be any outrage or anybody caring. Well, Because the outrage machine around Hillary Clinton was coming from, you know, the right and kind of the the radicals around Trump. Of course, we know that the door doesn't swing both ways for those cats. But I think the most interesting thing was how you actually had staff people taping back together documents that Trump had ripped up and thrown into the trash And then they submitted those to the National Archives because that's the thing. The presidential papers are supposed to be preserved. That is a law. And and, and we do that because, you know, the president's kind of a big deal. What happens with the president and what he or she does is a big deal. And so the fact that he's like tearing it up and then you've got like some staffer digging it out of the trash and and taping it together. I think that's a. That's unprecedented. Well, there was a clip that ran on The View about all the speeches that he gave um, where he talked about flushing the toilet. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times. What goes with a sink and a shower? (laughs) 10 times, right? 10 times. Well, not me, of course, not me. But you, him. We won't talk about toilets, but you know that's a... It's sort of gross to talk about, right? So I won't, th- I won't talk about the fact that people have to flush their toilet 15 times. So you gotta wonder. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think the two things I really don't want to ever talk about again are Trump and toilets, to okay. be quite frank. Okay. All right. Then let's talk with our guest about something completely different. 
And our guest is a 20-year-old political enthusiast who's gotten the attention of big-name journalists from the New York Times' Jonathan Martin and Greg Bluestein from the AJC says our guest, Niles Francis, has quickly made a mark on the Georgia politics scene with his quick wit and incisive analysis. And many people are stunned to discover he's a teenager. Well, this is when he said it, he was a he, he was a teenager and not a grizzled veteran politico, a testament to his remarkable political aptitude. And Niles is with us today. If you follow Niles on Twitter, it's at Niles, G-A-P-O-L. And he's with us today. I am always so into his political insight. And we're finally having him on the Vote Her podcast. Niles, good to have you on. Thank you ladies so much for having me. Good to speak with you all. Now, so was I right? You're 20 now, right? I am 20. Yes. Okay. When did you really, you have such a, and for those who don't follow Niles on Twitter, like you study literally every political map nationwide. You know about every race, every like rando. I feel like every, you know, every city council member (laughs) coast to coast. (laughs) When did you start getting interested in politics? Well, um, it's funny, like when I was like five or six years old, like um, I took it upon myself. I don't know why I did this or what led me to do this. I think it was probably the candidacy at the time of uh, Barack Obama. Um, I took it upon myself to memorize every American president from George Washington to, at the time, Barack Obama. And um, since then, the rest is history. Um, I didn't really start getting into the numbers side of things until like after the 2016 election when I saw people like um, Steve Kornacki basically saying on TV, like, you have to do well here, here, there, there. And it just fascinated me. It was just so you know mesmerizing how they knew so much about all these different places where they've probably never even visited before. So, <laughs> so I just thought that it was fascinating. But yeah, since then, I've, you know, really come to enjoy um, the numbers um, aspect of things. And, you know, living in Georgia, there is definitely no shortage of that. So <laughs> there's no shortage of that. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, just observing all everything from a numbers perspective can be very fascinating. Like, you know, looking at, you know, how an area votes, you know, one year to the next, you know, things like that, trends. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. It's all very interesting. Well, and what you've been really good at doing, Niles, is is actually striking up friendships with electeds, people running for office, journalists, and and really having a connection with them. And and that kind of comes through in terms of your social media, the stuff you put out there, but also just how thoughtful a lot of the things that you write are. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are rooting for you. I appreciate that, Jen. I appreciate that. I follow everything you say. I am so you have such witty observations. So how do you see let's start with the primary for governor between Kemp and Purdue, uh, since you're so good with numbers. What are you forecasting? Well, um, right now, I will say that I think the governor has the edge because um First of all, like Purdue, um, Senator Purdue does not attract large crowds. Like this was like the, he was like this before, um, in, during the uh, runoff campaign. Like he really does not attract big crowds unless he, unless he was with, um, Senator Leffler or with President Trump, former President Trump. Um, <laughs> he just does not attract big crowds by himself. And we see, we've seen this over the last few weeks. Like, like the pictures that he shares of all of his events, like, 
there's still a lot of empty seats. Like there's, <laughs> there's no standing room. So, well, there is standing room rather. There is standing room. So yeah, he just doesn't attract large crowds. He's not a very enthusiastic speaker. He has no charisma and the governor has a lot going for him. Like, you know, you know, like the senator knows, like, you know, you guys are working on the state budget. Like Georgia is going to spend a lot of money this year and give back a lot of money this year. And he has that going for him in a primary, like, Hey, like you guys are getting more money back. So <laughs> why not? So, um, yeah, it's things like that as to why I think the, um, as to why I think I'm the governor's favorite right now. And I will say that I, this is, you know, might not be that big of a deal to most people, but I think it is. I think the former president not having Twitter to amplify his message anymore really, really, really hurt him. Like we saw in that AJC poll a couple of weeks ago, like his popularity in Georgia has plummeted, even among Republicans. Like, you know, um, I believe the number of Republicans who said that they would not vote for him, not, they would not vote for a candidate knowing that they were endorsed by Trump um, is relatively high, is relatively high. And I think a part of that is people not being able to see the form, like, because he was most visible on Twitter. That's where we all got his information. That's, that's where he said the things that he wants to say that, you know, things like that. So um, the fact that he's not on Twitter anymore kind of um, stripped him of his biggest microphone, basically. Like nobody can hear. The only way we really hear what he says is when reporters share his statements, like on social media. That's right. the only time we that are, And they're bad. They're bad press releases. Right. They're, they're poorly written. And, you know, what's interesting, it, it, and I agree with you, Niles, with respect to that. I think what is going to be interesting is how this uh, impacts the general election. And let me specifically talk about, you know, there was a difference of 50,000 votes between Kemp and Abrams in 18. And if you went and you looked at throughout the states and the counties, Kemp really actually overperformed Trump throughout Georgia. So if you take away even just a portion, right, of those Trump voters, I mean, even if it's much smaller now than it, than it was, I mean, demographically, we've already changed a little bit. And then you take away even just some of those voters. I mean, does that close the gap between Abrams and Kemp? It absolutely does. And I think we really saw this during the um, runoff campaign last year. Like, um, you know, the former president basically went on this crusade against Georgia's election systems. And he was he, he was kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, saying, like, hey, the election is rigged, but you still have to vote. <laughs> but you still have to vote. And I think that mentality set in with some Trump supporters to the point where many of them just didn't turn out to vote. And we saw this especially um, in um, areas like the North Georgia mountains, which is traditionally a Republican stronghold, like turnout in those areas, you know, plummeted, you know, compared to the 2020 presidential election, while turnout in many urban areas, urban and suburban areas was relatively the same, was relatively the same compared to the uh, presidential um, race. So, um, yeah, turnout is definitely going to be an important factor. And when you have a a, a former president basically, telling his party, like, hey, the election is rigged, but you still have to vote, combined with the fact that, you know, he does not have a great relationship with um, with um, Governor Kemp anymore, that could lead to some maybe drop-off of voting from Republican voters or many Republican voters just not voting at all. We'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's a lot of interesting dynamics I play here with respect to the former president. Right, because it doesn't take much. I mean, you it know, really we've got the primary. That's one thing. Right. But but when we are talking about ultimately the vote count as it 
you know, between Abrams and, and Kemp, I mean, wow, there are some factors that are at play here that we that weren't in, weren't at play in 18 and, and could definitely make make a difference. Yeah, and Georgia has definitely changed a lot since 2018, to say the least. So, um, you know, it's going to be a lot of interesting factors at play. Like, you know, it's going to be a very expensive race as well. Like we saw last week where Stacey Abrams announced that she raised $9 million in just like two months in the race, I believe. And um, Governor Kemp announced that he has like how much? I think it's $12 million, nearly $13 million on hand. So um, it's going to be a very, very expensive race. Like, I think it's going to make <laughs> I think it's going to make last year's runoffs look like pocket change. Well, and that doesn't even deal with the leadership committee thing. And so what's interesting is that the court has temporarily enjoined Kemp right now. But I think the whole idea is that after the primaries and you have two standard bearers of the, of the party right running and each has the ability to uh, raise into that leadership committee, then some of the concerns that the judge had kind of go away. And I looked at Fair Fight's um, disclosure the other day, and they reported $20 million in the bank. So imagine if, when and if she is the party nominee, I mean, using a leadership committee, she legally, legally could take the $20 million from Fair Fight and just transfer it over to a leadership committee and use that immediately for her run for governor. It's going to be very, very, like, it, it really is fascinating how these elections have gotten so, so expensive. Like, it requires a ton of money to just run TV ads. Like, we saw during the um, runoffs last year, like, um, I, I believe nearly a billion dollars was spent on those runoff elections last year. Um, and, like, you know, in a mid-sized state like Georgia, in a mid-sized state like Georgia, which is dominated by one media market, <laughs> You know, most of that money is going to be spent in one media market. And it's, and as you know probably very well, Senator, um, the Atlanta media market is not that cheap. So, so uh, um, yeah, No. And the more races you have, the higher the, the price tag goes, right? It's great for the TV stations, though. Um, exactly. I was like, <laughs> love it. I was going to mention, like, I don't, like during the runoff last year, like, um, it, like these TV stations got so much money that some of them even started adding on extra hours to their newscast. Right, <laughs> right, so, right. So um, let's yeah. shift. Let's shift to the Senate race. Warnock is going to be running again, and it appears the front runner is going to be Herschel Walker. Yeah. I did see you tweet today. I follow your every move, Niles. I'm a, <laughs> Thank uh, you. I'm up in your business. And you said something about, you know, there was an AP article that came out about Herschel Walker, about a police report that was released. And it's, it's you know, without going into the details, you can go, uh, go ahead and Google it for yourself. And you said that, you know, obviously that is going to be used as huge opposition research. But I just wonder, this race is going to be so close. I don't, I don't think that Republicans care. What do you think, Niles? They probably don't. And I will say that, um, you know, Herschel Walker has had quite a week. <laughs> He's had quite a week. That AP report that you just mentioned. And like, you know, the other day he. Um, oh, the fundraiser. Yeah. Yeah. He tweeted and then deleted a picture of himself in Texas. So, um, you know, home sweet home, I guess. <laughs> So, um, yeah, he's definitely had quite a week, but like, you're probably right in a close state like Georgia, 
to many partisans, to many like hardcore partisans, stories like this probably will not matter. It's all going to come down to one thing and one thing only, it's turnout. And I will say that that AJC, I mentioned that AJC poll earlier from last month, um, you know, basically had, um, you know, Biden's numbers like in the low 30s, but Warnock was still within three points of Herschel Walker in that poll. And I think that that is not a terribly good sign for Herschel Walker. The fact that Warnock is still polling within the margin of error despite Biden's low numbers, I don't think that's a good sign. And I think um, Warnock, um, like, I think he, I think his, um, he's like, he's going to be in like for, between 50 and 48 percent regardless. I think um, Walker, uh, Herschel Walker has more room to fall because he's not tested yet. Like people haven't seen him on the campaign trail. People haven't seen him in debates. People haven't seen him, you know, do TV ads or things like that. So I think once he starts getting out there more and people start getting a better understanding of who he is, because let's face it, the average voter who lives in Georgia today did not live in Georgia when Herschel Walker was playing football. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think when more people start to, start to uh, get a better understanding of who he is, I think his numbers are going to start to um, crater. So we'll see what happens. That's just my uh, opinion for now. Okay. But um, once, once, the, um, I, once the primary yeah. is open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that it, it's one of those things where people have a warm fuzzy in terms of Herschel because of, you know, winning the national championship. And we all grew up Herschel Walker, my first dog was named Herschel. You love I mean, talking about that. <laughs> well, I'm just so bereft. But yes. anyway, but I think that once there starts to be money put behind kind of re reframing Mr. Walker, let's say, and kind of adding a little bit more meat to the bone in terms of his life after UGA, I think people are going to start having a much harder time actually feeling warm and fuzzy about him. And I have a Republican um, friend whose name I will not mention, um, who basically told me that um, they think that Herschel Walker is making a big mistake here because they basically think that he's got so much respect, you know, from being, you know, a UGA, you know, football star. And they think that, you know, him running for Senate is just going to um, throw all that away. Like he won't be remembered for that anymore, basically, which is not an unfair argument. Like, like, you know, this Senate race is going to define the rest of his life. It's not going to be his life, his career as a football player. It's going to be this Senate campaign. Whether he wins or loses, this is going to define who he is for the rest of his life. Yeah, people forget. I mean, please. they You know, nowadays, who remembers anything? I mean, you know, we've we've all learned this. You've definitely had some some notoriety. And I wanted to get your opinion on this. Um, This happened last week. There is someone similar to you in Virginia, an activist whose his name's Ethan. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, okay, so he has been very aggressive, kind of going against Governor Youngkin about mass policies or this, that, and the other thing. And and it was really interesting because not Governor Youngkin specifically, but his team kind of trolled him a little bit. I mean, he's like a high school student. Now, Youngkin eventually apologized about that and and kind of put the fire out. But you yourself have been the subject of me because you are very outspoken on Twitter and, and, you know, in your social media and, and, and you've been the subject of some scrutiny. What's, what's, what is that like? What does that feel like? It's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling. Um, like, you know, you, you probably remember when um, 
you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene flicked her QAnon followers on me a while back. Um, it was definitely not an exciting experience. It was definitely something that I was not used to. But I know that, you know, being on the Internet like that is going to come with scrutiny. Like that's not going to um, that's not going to change. Like, hey, you're a public person. Like and being a public person comes with having scrutiny. But um, at the same time, like, um, well, like if you're uh, all I'm going to say on that whole thing is if you are the um if you are a new governor and your campaign is, you know, basically going after a high schooler on Twitter, that's not an ideal way to spend your first month in office. But that's just me. Like you definitely, people, like I think the um, whole lesson behind that is you need to really vet your social media team and your digital team because, like, you don't want you know to spend your um, first month in office doing something like that, having to basically, um, you know apologize for, you know, getting into an argument with the high schooler. That's not, that, that's not ideal for a new governor, but that's just me. Yeah. It's interesting because I really do have this feeling that once you are elected like governor of a state, right. Or president, whatever it is, you are the governor for everybody, right. It, it, it really, it, the tone, the tonality of your social media, all of it, really should be different because, you know, every person in this state, Republican, Democrat, independent, nonpartisan, whatever, is looking to, you know, the governor for leadership. And so that kind of, you know, you call it misstep, whatever we call it, is is really, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's not ideal. <laughs> it's and it's also not fu- like, I, you know, it's it's funny because it's like, oh, people were like, oh, well, you know, it was this kid who kind of started it. But like. You know, I mean, he he has a Twitter account with a couple thousand. I mean, he's got a pretty big following, but it did make me think of you because I remember, Niles, you did like you were the subject of it. Didn't you turn off your Twitter for a little while? Yeah, for a couple of days, for a couple of days. But um, it definitely taught me like you need to <laughs> like I, I learned a few things from that. Like um, one of the things I took away from that was like, hey, like you're not living in a civilized society anymore. Like nothing is off limits. Anymore. So um, like the fact that no, nothing, not even children are off limits these days. Like it's definitely, it, it's sad when you think about it, like, especially when you see, um, when you see all of these debates on like, you know, things like critical race theory and, you know, the governor announced this week that he's, you know, going to um, allow, um, going to file legislation to allow parents to have the final say in, um, you know, masking their children in schools, despite the fact that most school districts in Georgia already do that, (laughs) already do that. Like, I I don't think that um, I'm of the opinion that children should not be used as political pawns. They were looking at Youngkin's race and, you know, they were keying off of that. But I think Youngkin's race is a lot different than the one that we're looking at between Kemp and Purdue. And I also think as as we come out of COVID more and as children are, you know, have access to vaccinations and you know what I'm saying is things change in terms of even masking and all that. I think maybe a lot of the frustration that parents were feeling that that really informed some of that young can vote. I think some of the heat's going to be taken out of that. But. You know, one thing they've really got to be careful about is that it seems like a lot of the bills that the Republicans are filing, whether it's critical race theory, but whatever it is, all of this, this social, you know, culture war stuff, 
it, it, it attacks teachers ultimately and has people going after teachers and not really honoring them or respecting them or being deferential in terms of their expertise in the classroom. And I'll tell you that I think you can you can ask a former governor named Roy Barnes that teachers may not be the political bear you want to you want to poke. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But like, like this whole argument over um, my critical race theory and masking in schools, like it really makes you wonder, like, this is the same party. OK, this is the same. I, you know, I say this a lot. This is the same party that talks a lot about how they love you know, local control, small government, but they're busy, you know, trying to tell students and teachers what they can and can't talk about in classrooms. Like, I don't think that's very small government, but that's <laughs> just my two cents. Okay, Niles, let's get your predictions. I know we're recording this in February 2022, but what do we think is going to happen in November uh, 2022. I mean, can you make any of those predictions? I don't know if you can, now. <laughs> yeah, you really, you really can't do that right now. You really can't do that right now because this is, this is Georgia. Like, you know, it's a 50-50 state and every vote is going to matter. Um, like, it's like almost every race up and down the ballot is going to be extremely close. And, um, but um, if you were to ask me, so um, I'd have an easier time making some predictions in the primaries right now because. OK, um, let's hear them. What are your predictions in the Georgia <laughs> primaries? So um, in the governor's race um, right now, I do think that um, it's like I said, Kemp is Kemp? probably in the driver's seat in terms of fundraising and enthusiasm. And um, and um, let's see, the lieutenant governor's race is probably the only one I'm really unsure of because like that. Um, Butch Miller, Burt Jones race is absolutely fascinating. Man, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is crazy. Yeah. They're raising a ton of money. And um, Burt Jones, as we know, has um, the um, Trump endorsement. And they both, it's interesting because they both hail from parts of the state that are critical to the Republican base. Like Butch Miller is from Gainesville, is from Gainesville. And um, Burt Jones is from East Georgia. So like those two areas are really, really um, crucial for um, Republican turnout. So, um, well, and let's talk about what's interesting about that is that Butch has raised a good bit of money and Burt has raised a good bit of money. But Burt has also already stroked himself a check, a personal check for two million dollars and his family's personal wealth is pretty significant. So, you know, he I said something about, you know, man, I'm, I'm kind of bummed that the, the general, you know, our session's going to last so long because, you know, we can't raise money. We can't get out there and campaign. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm fine in terms of the money. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, yeah, must be nice guy. Right. So anyway, keep yeah. going. Niles. Yeah. And then obviously there's the um, Democratic lieutenant governor primary. That's another one where I have no idea what's going to happen. Like that one is going to um, come down to um, that, that's one that's one primary that I think is almost certainly going to go to a runoff. We'll see what happens with that one. And then um, the secretary of state's race. Oh, my God. That's another interesting one. Oh, that's going yeah. to be a barn burner as well. Um, when you saw the other day, Jody Heiss outraised Raffensperger in the um, prime in the um, last uh, f- uh, fundraising period. Um, but um, B. Wen has more cash on hand than both of them, so that's going to be a very interesting race. And I wonder why, like, it mystifies me why Jody Heiss burned through so much of his money <laughs> in the last 
uh, fundraising period. Like, uh, Jen, I don't know if you looked at the disclosures, but like Jody Heist burned through like most of his money in the last period. And I'll have to go back and look. I'll tell you the ones that I've looked at. What's been interesting is that Republicans tend to have a bunch of consultants on retainer. Um, so they're mm-hmm. paying like these monthly, you know, 5000 2500 you know, 5000 monthly. And, mm-hmm. and then with these fundraising firms that they use, they take big chunks of money. So that really takes a huge bite out of kind of a cash on hand. So even if you raise a lot, I mean, you are, you are spending so much just to raise it that ultimately the question is, you know, is it really worth it? Yeah. And then you also um, have, like, I said this the other day, like a Jody Heist B. Wen race for secretary of state would be incredibly polarizing. Like these are two candidates who have absolutely nothing in common. Like B. Wen is a liberal state representative from Atlanta. And Jody Heist is a far right congressman from Northeast Georgia. Like, like we thought that the Abrams Kemp matchup was polarizing in 2018. Like, like, like that Secretary of State's race, if that materializes, that is, um, would be incredibly, incredibly polarizing. Nothing would be off limits. Like it would be. Off- I just saw him on a Vice interview, and he's still straight up denying the election results. I mean today he's a full-on you know tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theory guy i mean i'm i'm not exaggerating you have candidates in michigan arizona running on this running running on the exact same platform so it makes you wonder like hey is the former president trying to get these candidates into place so that he can have a favorable environment to try to do some of the things that he could not do in 2020 like that's oh my god Oh, Niles. All right. Yeah. You're going to keep us all updated. You got to follow Niles at Niles, G-A-P-O-L. Uh, go yeah. ahead and find him on his Peach State Politics with Nile Francis on Substack. It's nilefrancis.substack.com. Subscribe to it. All right, Niles, you're going to check back in with us on the Vote Her podcast with your predictions. I like how he wouldn't predict who could win anything. But you know what? I'm going to predict... <laughs> This is going to be this is going to be shocking to people. I'm going to predict that Stacey Abrams wins the Democratic primary for governor. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably a fair prediction. But yeah, we'll probably um, how about right before the primary? Let's check back in again. Okay, that sounds great, Niles. (laughs) Well, you all have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right. That was a lot of fun. I liked Niles a lot. And that was my first time, like, actually talking to him. IRL. Jen, in real life. Ah! (laughs) Maren knows that I am, like, the least cool person ever. So she's, like, literally, she's like, let me translate for you. Uh, I think his predictions are 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 really interesting. I mean, I, I follow him very closely. I think he writes really well. And I think that's, you know, a really... I think people need to listen to young people like that. He's 20 years old. He studies up on all these numbers. He networks. I mean, he knows you. He knows every single person in every race. It is really, really admirable. I'm just rooting for him. No, I am too. And look, he's he uses data to inform his opinion. So it's not even just this, you know, this is how I 
feel about something. It's like, well, I've looked at the numbers and historically this is what's happened, but maybe then this is going to come into play. And I think it's really smart analysis. So I think somebody should be paying him more. Oh, I think somebody probably <laughs> will eventually, right? Okay. I'm glad he spoke about the time that he was sort of doxxed by Marjorie Taylor Greene and her followers. It is very unpleasant when that happens, as Jen, you know, because you were counting the ballots. You know, remember you and Helena Barron were counting the but two, two state senators were rigging right, the election. Up in, up in Pennsylvania, <laughs> right? Whatever. But Niles, you know, have that. And, you know, obviously... You know, he brought up Marjorie Taylor Greene. I do not like to bring her up because I because I and I have a question for you. Now, it was funny because she meant to say Gestapo police when she was talking about people spying on pe members of Congress. Right. She said that that Nancy Pelosi had had now had a Gestapo, but she didn't say Gestapo. Right. Well, we'll play it. Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the legislative work that we do, spying on our staff and spying on American citizens that want to come talk to their representatives. This government has turned into something it was never meant to be, and it's time to make it end. So she said gazpacho police, which it's hysterical, and I, I hadn't heard it, and then I saw everybody making fun of it and memes about it. But then I saw something really – someone had said that that everybody thinks she's dumb and she didn't know what she was saying, but she knows exactly what she's doing and, and does it on purpose because then she becomes a news cycle. What do you make of that? Maybe. I think uh, both things can be true. I think she can be doing stuff to be outrageous – and to take over a news cycle. And I can also think she's not that bright. <laughs> Caspacho police, though. Yeah, look, she said stuff like that in the past. Yeah. I mean, she she was she she has denied the mass shooting of children. Of course. So anybody who who pushes that kind of stuff, you know, I can't. The only way in, in my head that, that I can think that that person is not just a really awful human being is that there's got to be a couple of screws loose. Yeah. Well, OK. It's crazy. It did have me craving gazpacho. Not even. Are you into gazpacho? No, it's just cut up tomatoes. <laughs> like what? Like. It's just vegetables, <laughs> like in their juice. That's if it's, it. you know what, if it's salted properly, a great gazpacho can be excellent on a very hot day. So, but but now is not the time you want to be eating gazpacho. Uh, no. Okay. Final note: I love the artist Casey Musgraves so much, and my date backed out at the last minute. Yvonne Monet, who you may know, Yvonne, DJ Yvonne Monet, who now works at Q99.7. She's a event producer all over town. We were supposed to go together. And she's very cool. She is. She, she's already agreed to DJ a Senator Jen running for AG event. She doesn't know that yet, <laughs> but she's going to do it. So she... So she gave me these tickets to Casey Musgraves and I, I texted Jen. Now you need to know this. I text Jen a lot and she <laughs> responds about 
20% of the time. <laughs> and I don't blame her because it's usually me screenshotting funny things or, you know, it's usually like random shit that I, I'm not expecting you to respond. So I thought this was going to be one of those times. I said, do you want to go to Casey Musgraves with me? And in one second, and this is how I know she sees all my text. I just got a yes in all capital letters. Will we go to the show? And Jan announces to me, you know, I really don't know any of her music. <laughs> Mara's thinking, I must be a huge fan I to totally have jumped did. on this opportunity. I was like, oh my gosh. So, so you didn't really know, you knew who she was. Right. I knew that she was kind of this phenom who had won um, Artist of the Year, the Country Music Awards, and had had been somebody on kind of the fringes of Nashville. I saw like a, a TV interview with her. Right. But in terms of understanding kind of the draw or the she's got quite a following. Well, it was fun because, number one, it was exhilarating being at a concert in general at State Farm Arena and seeing other human beings and people in a good mood and live music and all of that. And Jen got recognized like right out of the gate. I was, I, I was, you know, and then I got recognized. Jen doesn't like attention. I love attention. <laughs> <laughs> but you enjoyed the show? Yeah, except I felt so old. <laughs> I mean, these these young women that, that are, I mean, huge fans of, of Casey Musgraves. I mean, talk about coming out in droves. It was really very... You said joyful, but it, it felt empowering, too. It did. For all of these young women to really feel, you, you could tell that, that they, they really liked her and they really felt like they could relate to her. And, and you know, she was this strong woman. And it was, it was pretty cool. Listen, we want to thank, as always, Christina Laurenter for being such a great producer of the Vote Her podcast. And to all of you, uh, we get so many great comments of people that listen to the podcast. And, and we really do appreciate you. And we will wrap this up, but we will talk to you next time. And uh, I'm going to drag Jen out of the house. <laughs> <laughs>